The Pre-Med Year, session number 247. Hello and welcome to the three-time Academy Award-nominated podcast, The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, I will share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. And welcome to The Pre-Med Years. Thank you for joining me. Now, as I am releasing this episode on... August 16th, 2017. Next week, August 21st, I will be in California for Podcast Movement, where I will be, where I am nominated for the third time for Best Science and Medicine podcast for the pre mid years for this podcast. But I'm telling you that because on August 21st, if you are in the Southern California area, I'm hosting a meetup. We're going to have some Thai dinner at a Thai restaurant in Whittier, California, 7 p.m. on Monday, August 21st. If you can make it, I would love for you to join me. Go to the Hangout, which is at medicalschoolhq.net slash group and RSVP in the Hangout there. I also want to let you know that I'm going to be in Tampa on November 4th, and we'll be doing a meetup uh, either the 3rd or the 4th for AMSA's Pre-Med Fest. If you're pre-med, you need to head to AMSA's Pre-Med Fest. It'll be at University of South Florida, November 4th and 5th, you can join hundreds of students like you, like I used to be. You can hear from physicians, med students, subject matter experts about what matters most on your journey to medical school. You'll get tips not only how to get into medical school, but also how to stay healthy once you are there. Explore the unique emerging specialties and get practice in splinting and suturing. Register now and you can save some money using the promo code MSHQ17. Again, that's MSHQ17. Go to amsapremedfest.org. All right, so this podcast is a great one. I have a friend coming on to talk about being, in air quotes, just a MD or if, if you're on the DO path, just a DO, and being a researcher. A lot of students have the question about MD-PhD programs, about the dual degree programs, MD-PhD or DO-PhD. And students think that, oh, I, I want to do research as a physician. I, I need to get an MD-PhD. And I'll just, I'll say MD, PhD, understand that I know you can get a DO, PhD as well, but just for ease of, of communicating, I'll say MD, PhD. Under, students will think that because they are interested in research or that they want to have research as part of their career as a physician, that they should or that they need to get an MD, PhD, get a dual degree while in medical school. My guest today, Dr. Maureen Leonard, and I, uh, she affectionately goes by Mo to all of her friends, so I call her Mo during the podcast, but Dr. Maureen Leonard is quote-unquote just an MD. She now also has a master's in some sort of fancy translational research, something or other that helps her do her research, um, but she 
basically, and, and you'll hear in this podcast, she her job is like 70 to 80% research as quote unquote just an MD. And and we talk about her journey into medicine, the advice that she got when she was doing research in undergrad with a, a PhD advisor, the 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 advice that she got to get an MD PhD to go and get that dual degree. And what she's been doing throughout her career as a pre-med, as a medical student, and now as a physician through her residency and everything else to lead to where she's at now being a very, very successful physician scientist, researching the majority of the time and the perks that come with that. Um, Also, the, the struggles that come with that, but the perks as well. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. So if you are one of those students that are thinking, oh, I need to get a dual degree, I need that PhD, if you are one of those students, listen to this episode, and maybe you'll change your mind, or maybe not. Let's go ahead and dive in and say hi to Mo. Mo, welcome to the pre-med years. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So you were on the Specialty Stories podcast talking about what you do as a pediatric gastroenterologist. But I want to dive in more this time about your path to medicine and then specifically what you're doing now as far as a career, not specialty-wise, but what your job and life look like now. Does that sound like fun? Yep. (laughs) So, Mo, when did you know you wanted to be a doctor? Um, Probably senior year in high school. I had wanted to be a dancer, and that didn't look like it was working out. Um, And so I knew I enjoyed helping people. I liked science, and I started going down the medicine route. How did you explore that passion? Obviously, you don't go from from dancing to doctor. How did you figure that out for yourself? Well, um, I went to high school in the city of Boston, right around a bunch of hospitals. And so I did volunteer work um, throughout my high school years at actually Mass General, where I work. Um, And I also had part-time jobs doing filing in Boston Children's Hospital. So my part-time jobs, some, some of them were in hospitals. That's awesome. What did you, what did you find to be the hardest part of your pre-med journey? It was just a ton of work. So I, in college, wanted to make sure that I had a a lot of experience and I was really ready to sort of head into medical school. So, I mean, I spent a fair amount of time doing research in my free time. Um, My major was psychobiology, which they have renamed neuroscience, luckily. Um, (laughs) But but, um, I did different research projects with rats um, throughout my time in college. I, you know, like many people, um, got my EMT license. I was shadowing. I was volunteering. So I think it was, you know, the hardest part was juggling so many things to try and make sure I was a well-rounded applicant. So you were the typical pre-med, just trying to do as much as possible. Once I hit college, yes. Yeah. What, why did you think think you needed all that stuff or who who gave you that advice that you needed to to have all of this experience I think it was my pre-med advisor um at the time it said really you need to have some clinical exposure um 
my my psychology advisor thought that research would be helpful, but I was also really interested in this research um, and doing research and seeing what it was like. And so I was sort of doing that, you know, because I was interested in it, but also because I was sort of encouraged to do both research and have some clinical experience. It's, I'm glad you brought up the research end of it because that's eventually what we'll we'll talk more about. But the initial research, it, it sounds like it was a recommendation and not necessarily this innate drive that you're like, oh, I, I need to do research. Well, my major was one in which we had to do, you know, some research for the psychology degree and also sort of a thesis for the biology degree. Um, and the major was very small. And so my mentor at the time did a lot of research and she invited me to do research with her. Um, and so, yeah, I thought, okay, I'll try it out and see what it's like. And I ended up really liking it. What did you like about it? I I like being able to sort of ask questions and you know, design how to answer that question and then sort of watch it all unfold. What was your initial research? Do you remember? Oh, I do. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So we, this is so weird. Um, We were trying to identify what vocalizations in rats meant. Um, And there was this, there was research to suggest that rats made a 55 kilohertz ultrasonic vocalization. Can't remember. I like, can't believe I remember it so well. Um, and that was supposed to be laughter. And you could elicit this vocalization if you legit tickled the rats. <laughs> so I spent like hours a day in college tickling rats, eliciting this vocalization. And then eventually we were doing like place preference um, studies to confirm that these vocalizations went, meant that they were happy. So you tickled rats. I tickled rats and they were like not, we didn't get like the freshies. We got like these very large, old, <laughs> angry rats. Old grumpy that we rats. Tried to, <laughs> that we tickled like morning, noon, and night. And you <laughs> put that on your application. Oh, yeah. Did that ever come up in interviews? Like, tell me about oh, this yeah. tickling rats thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, it did. Yeah. What did you talk I mean, about? I mean, just that. I'd yeah. be like, we tickled rats in this certain smell and not in this other one. And um, it was really cool. What's the What's the goal behind figuring that out? Um, <laughs> well, I think that... I don't know. <laughs> it was tickling <laughs> rats. Know. Enough said. <laughs> I don't know. Like, they made it like when they're around babies. I don't know. I don't know what we were going to do with that information, but there, I should look into this because there is still a person that was doing it. We weren't the only ones. <laughs> There's still somebody out there tickling rats. <laughs> yes. That's interesting. Yeah. It's like a big deal in that world, probably. <laughs> yeah. So so the moral of the story is if there's something you're interested in doing research-wise, you can it's do available. it. <laughs> it's available. Yeah. Somebody will give it. you a grant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's very interesting. Okay. So I, you remember it very clearly because it's obviously a very, uh, very specific thing for you. Tickling yes. rats. Okay. <laughs> awesome. So you, you were big into research or were into research in college 
because of your major and because it was the pre-med thing to do. When you were applying to medical schools, did you ever have the discussion with your advisor, the, the difference between going to, quote unquote, just an MD school or an MD PhD program? Yes. Um, so my psychology advisor from throughout my entire college experience was very adamant that I should do MD PhD. And of the four people that I've sort of worked with, um, two of us went to medical school. One did the MD PhD and I did not. But she felt very strongly that I should do the MD PhD. And I don't know if I can say on this, but she made it very clear that by me not applying that I was making a huge mistake. Uh, why? What was her rationale behind that? She just thought that I could do more with the MD-PhD and that I was obviously interested in research and that it just opened so many more doors is what she felt. Okay. And what was her background? She was a PhD okay. in psychology. Okay. Interesting. So that, that Actually, was her world. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think she was a PsyD, but... A PsyD, yeah. P so a clinical psychologist. Mm, yeah. Okay. I'd have to look. Okay. So, interesting. So she's giving you the advice, MD, PhD, the PhD is going to open more doors for you. What was your decision for not going that route? I wanted to learn more about research because that was sort of a new thing in college. Um, and I also felt that I made the decision to go to med school a little bit later than some other people, sort of. I had to change my major when I got into college just so I could be pre-med. Um, so I took a year before applying or I took a year after co graduating college to apply. And during that year, I did um, basic science research with now mice, <laughs> um, which was great because they're so much smaller. <laughs> but um so I was still thinking, I knew research was going to be part of, I hoped research was going to be part of my life. Um, but at the time, I didn't know what I wanted to specialize in. And so I couldn't imagine applying to an MD-PhD program and not having sort of this passion for what I was doing. I knew I wanted to be in medicine. I thought I wanted to do research, but without having like a, I'm going to do this for, you know, the rest of my life, I couldn't imagine agreeing to a, whatever, seven, eight, nine-year program when I didn't even know what my focus in medicine was going to be. Your focus, I, I'm, I'm confused on why that made a difference for MD, PhD versus MD, because you were going in blind either way. What is the shorter MD route? What did that allow you to do differently? Or why was that less scary? Well, because in, I knew I wanted to go to medical school and figure out sort of what my specialty would be. Would it be like OBGYN or pediatrics or who knows? But when I thought about doing an MD-PhD, I thought about, you know, medical school is you're learning physiology, pathophysiology, and then it's different rotations to figure out what you should be doing or what you want to do. Whereas the three or four years of the PhD, you're delving into some, you know, very specific question that you have. And I didn't have a question yet because I didn't know 
what I was going to specialize in. Oh, so you were saying, so you're saying it's better for MD PhDs or, or you thought it was better for MD PhD students to go in with more of a career trajectory in mind specialty wise so that their research years doing the PhD, the research would be surrounding the specialty that they wanted to go into. I guess that's how I viewed it. I don't yeah. think that's necessary. But for me to be excited about spending so much time, you know, on a project, I needed to feel passionate about it. And until I knew even where I was, you know, going to specialize in medicine, I couldn't commit to something for that long without really having any passion behind it. Yeah. So it wasn't, yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. I don't, I don't think it's a necessary thing, but for you, it, it sounds like the, the rationale, the thought process made sense. Yeah. When you were accepted to medical school for a single degree, did you think at that point that you would continue doing research or did you then say, okay, I, I'm going to be a, a clinical physician and the research uh, will go away now? Well, at that point, I had spent, you know, a full year doing research and most of my college experience doing research. So I wasn't sure. I thought research might be a part of it, but I did spend the extra time we had in medical school not doing research, but instead doing global health work. Wait a minute. Extra time in medical school? Where did you find that? <laughs> you mean I mean that one summer we had off <laughs> oh, between okay. first year and second year, and then instead of um, doing like research electives um, or spending that summer doing research, I did different global health trips. Why did you choose to do that instead of continuing your research? Because I wanted to, I'm all, I was very curious and I, again, didn't know exactly what I wanted my life as a doctor to look like. And that was something I always wanted to experience. And so I wanted to spend my time in medical school examining whether that would be something that I'm interested in in the long term. So it's, it's funny. It sounds like your, your pre-med and, and medical school path has really been just one big research experiment for you, setting up the question and figuring out how to answer that question. Right. I definitely did not go in like, this is the specialty and this is what I see. I wanted to experience everything and see what felt right to me. Okay. Interesting. What's interesting, Mo, I don't know if you know, a lot of schools uh, are starting to look at getting rid of that first summer and, and just doing all clinical or preclinical stuff so that, that students can start their clinical work earlier. Yes, I taught at Harvard Medical School this year, and that's exactly what they're doing. Yeah, I don't agree with it. No, they only have two weeks off. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Anyway, that's a podcast for another day. <laughs> so you, you go on your global health adventures and you come back. When did research come back into your life during medical school? So I don't think it did. Not in medical school. Okay. So it stayed on the shelf. It stayed on the shelf and I went to uh internship and residency. Okay. And you you did pediatric residency? Yep. In Boston at Tufts. Yep. And I still liked global health and I still liked research. So at that point I put 
both back in to my mix. Okay. And how did you do that as, as an intern, as a resident? Again, very busy. How, does, how do you incorporate that into your life? Yeah. So I did feel like I was so very busy in the pre-med years that in the medical school years, I focused on really, you know, the work and then global health. And then I had to kick it up a notch again in internship and residency and try and do both if I really wanted to, you know, make an informed decision about how to spend my time as a doctor. So what I did was I did spend time on my rotations that did not require 100 hours a week um, in internship doing a retrospective chart review with pediatric gastroenterologists because I thought that that's probably where I was going, what I wanted to go into. And I also, um, so I did that first and second year so internship and first year residency. And then in the second two years of residency, um, my program allowed me to spend a month each year in Haiti um, doing global health work related to cholera and general pediatric medicine. Okay. And cholera related to PDGI, I'm assuming. Yeah. It also just so happened that there was a cholera epidemic and I was on my way there. So Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Mm-hmm. You, at, at this point in your life, right now, you're practicing as a pediatric gastroenterologist, and you've gotten heavily involved with studying celiac and all of the gut microbiome that's involved with that. How did you find that niche? So I was interested in celiac and studying celiac disease and autoimmune disease in general. Um, during medical school, I did a lot of reading about autoimmune disease, um, and I was reading about how many people thought that the gut is a very important organ in the development of autoimmune disease. Um, and so just from sort of reading during medical school and my you know experience in internship and residency, that's where my research interest was. Um, when I was applying for fellowships, I actually looked into different programs that had either some what, mucosal immunology um, or some sort of autoimmune group within their GI group. And so that's how I landed at MGH because they have a mucosal immunology and biology research center that was doing really exciting work um, at that level, can I say? But then it was just luck that I ended up being able to do exactly what I wanted because my mentor came to Mass General about six months after I started. Okay, so he wasn't there when you started there, so it just just happened to be. Right. I went down and I did look um, at the center that he was at because I really wanted to work with him. But I decided that MGH had a larger center and I didn't mm-hmm. want to move, you know, with for a PI because necess- I didn't know what would happen. Yeah. So I guess that was a good move <laughs> because I chose a place that had a large, you know, a lot of many opportunities in the area that I was interested in. And then um, 
my mentor who was doing exactly what I wanted to do came and moved up to MGH. Now, because you brought it up, I want to kind of switch gears just for a second and talk about your mentor. Was this a, a virtual mentor? Did he know that he was your mentor? Was it just somebody you were following or was it somebody that you had reached out to and actually were leaning on as a mentor? So when I was applying, I was just reading all of his research because it was what I found so interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't reach out to him until he didn't become my mentor until he moved to Mass General. Okay. So he was a virtual mentor. Before. Yeah. I was like reading. I was like, wow, whatever this guy is doing is super <laughs> cool. I want to do that someday. Okay. Yeah. That's a good way to go about finding mentors. It's just they don't know that that uh, they have mentees, <laughs> but they're just out there doing their thing. <laughs> yeah. He wasn't a mentor at that time. It was just like, <laughs> Wow, if I could do anything, I would research this. Yeah. Okay. Right now, how much of your day would you say, or how much of your week is is dedicated to research and not patient care? 70 to 80%. Three and a half to four days a week. Three and a half to four days a week, you're dedicated to doing research and not actively interacting with patients. Right. I see patients one day a week. But you're just an MD. How does that how does that work? For one, I will say I did um when I was focusing on research, I did apply for and complete a master's in clinical and translational investigation. Um so I had some I have some training in statistics. Um, and clinical trial design and other things. Um, but it really was just because in pediatric gastroenterology, we had these two years to focus on research. Um, and that's exactly what I did. And so I had a lot of experience during those two years. Um, I wrote papers. I have a mentor that you know, we are in line with the projects and he gives me a lot of opportunities, which I take. Um, and so I've been able to really become this, what we call translational investigator. So I realized that there is this large lab that there are many PhDs that have skills that take years to perfect. Um, and what I can do is really look at, go to the clinic, see patients, identify clinical problems. I'm able to obtain clinical samples from my patients and then collaborate with people in the lab, do some of the work on my own to answer questions that are really clinically interesting to me, um, but really get down to the sort of physiologic or pathophysiologic level. Your or advisor back in undergrad said that not having that PhD, not being an MD-PhD was going to hold you back. Do you think just having your MD has held you back? Absolutely not. Um, I think it's because, again, I I did this specialty training where I had time to focus on research. I I have an advantage because at this point I see that I can do, I can continue down this um, academic sort of 
physician-scientist path, which is my plan and which I love because I get to see patients, do research, collaborate with so many people. Um, Every day is different. But I also have the opportunity to, if I decide to make a change, I can become a full-time clinician, and I love that as well. Um, And then because I have this training and research and you know, I think the master's degree helps me as well. I can also go to industry and be a medical director um, or a translational scientist, you know, at a startup company in Boston. So I think I have a lot of different sort of opportunities as a physician that has focused on research. Yeah. And when, when you say industry, just for somebody that, that's listening doesn't know, you, you're talking pharmaceutical industry, even device manufacturing industry, that, exactly. that sort of industry. Okay. What do you think life would look like if you did go the MD-PhD route? I think it would look similar. I think it would, I think I would be a little bit older, <laughs> um, <laughs> but otherwise... I think when you do the MD-PhD route, I think either way, there's a balance. It works for me because everything I do is based on celiac disease and gluten-related disorders. So I'm able to see patients one day a week and do this research because all of the patients I see could possibly be research subjects or inspire research questions. I'm extremely focused and that makes, that's, allows me to see patients and do research because they're really almost seamless. But if you do MD-PhD, you still have to decide where to focus the majority of your time. And you also don't want to give up skills. So I do an extra half day every other week, um, and that's to do procedures because I don't want to give up my procedural skills. And I could do less clinic and do more research, but I don't want to give up seeing patients because I really like that and they help me with all of my research. So I think if you go the MD-PhD route, you still have to make choices on how much time do I want to spend being a clinician and how much time can I spend being a scientist. So I don't think that it would be any different because I can't see taking doing any less clinical work than I'm doing now. If if I were to summarize where you're at now and how you got there, let me see if I, I have this straight. You've gotten to where you are now, not because of the the letters after your name, but because of the decisions that you've made based on what has interested you and you being very intentional with the the life and the practice and the the setting that you've wanted to create, and it didn't matter what was after your name. Does that sound about right? That's that's correct. I think if there's passion for a certain research project, it doesn't it doesn't matter what letters are after your name. You're going to you're going to have questions, and you're going to need to answer them, um, and you'll find a way, and the success will come. So you've never regretted not doing the MD-PhD route? Never. Okay. 
Let's talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of doing research at a large academic medical center. I think one of the things that isn't talked about a lot um, that should be to pre-meds and even to medical students is is where money comes from and who's paying what and, and everything else that comes along with academics and the research that uh, happens in the academic world. Can we talk about that for a little bit? Sure. So you recently were awarded a nice big uh, prize. Talk about the, what you were just awarded research-wise and, and how that's going to affect you. So since being a faculty, well, sorry, you have to take that out too. Are you talking about NIH LRP? Whatever you want to talk about. Oh. The, the, um, the, your new thing that you had. Okay. So, well, I have two, I have an award from the NIH and I have a grant from the NIH currently. Um, so because I do more than 50% research, I am eligible to apply for the NIH loan repayment program. And as long as you are doing more than 50% research um, and you are doing, you have a research project that is in line with the NIH, you can essentially write a grant um, and be awarded up to $35,000 a year for two years. And that money goes straight to your loans. Um, and they also pay some federal taxes on that, a fair, like the whole thing. So I have now just received this past week um, my third and fourth year of that award. Wow. So that means over, well, 140000 straight to my loans. That's and amazing. I have giant loans. <laughs> giant, <laughs> giant loans. Giant loans. So that is awesome. So that's like um, free money, basically. It's free money. It's free money. And it's that's been really helpful because it's true that by working at a major academic center, um, you are not making the same salary that one could make in another state doing more clinical work. Mm -hmm. So that helps a lot. Um, the other piece I have from the NIH is that they are paying um, a fair amount of my salary, and that's through a mentored research grant called an NS NRSA or an F um, grant. So one thing I had to learn, which I really didn't know about, was all of these sort of NIH grants. Um, and so as a physician, physician scientist, um, there are sort of different grants that you can apply for. This is, again, a mentored grant. And so I have this grant for three years. Um, I've completed the first year of the grant. So I am trying to publish some papers and begin to think about applying for the next NIH grant, which would be a K award. And that is a five-year grant that pays 75% of your salary. Um, and sometimes you may even need to do a little bit less clinical work to really focus during that that's a career, um, a mentored sort of career award. What do you mean by mentored grant? So that means um, that in order to in order to be awarded this grant, I need a mentor that is going to oversee 
all of my work. Um, and that's supporting me with the rest of the salary that the NIH isn't covering. Interesting. Okay. So you're, you're still a, a student kind of. Yeah. So I'm not an independent, uh, sort of researcher at this point in the NIH's eyes. I'm a, I'm a mentored grantee. And then I go, the next one is sort of a, you're developing your own independent projects. And then that's the K. And then the R is you are sort of an independent investigator. Interesting. Okay. Award. Yeah. Slow progression. Yeah. Baby steps. I'm okay with that. (laughs) (laughs) It's the pace of government. (laughs) At this stage of your career, do you see yourself getting out of research? I would like to stay in research. Um, The funding environment is very difficult, so it's very hard to get grants. I've been really lucky, but I've worked really hard as well. So I've gotten several grants, but I applied to many, many more than I received. So I know maybe I applied to 15 and I got three. Um, so it's a lot of time spent writing um, and it's difficult. So I know, so I'm realistic. I, I love what I do. I want to keep doing this. My goal is to continue. I'm writing another grant right now. Um, I'm always writing grants and I'm going to continue to do that. And as long as I have funding, this is where I'm going to stay. But I am happy that I really love being a clinician and that I can see myself, you know, staying in research, if not on the academic path, um, through the pharmaceutical industry, if that's what I want to do. So I feel good about my options. Grants. Talk about what is involved with that. When you say it, I, I picture, oh, I just, I send off an email to grant at nah.com. <laughs> gov and say, yo, I need some money. What's involved with writing a grant? How long does one take to write? Um, it takes a long time. So some grants will ask for, um, sort of a letter of intent and you can maybe write a two or three page letter about what you want to do. And they'll invite you to then write a full grant. Others don't have that letter of intent and you just write a full grant. So um, the grant usually means that you are um, writing sort of your summary of what you're going to do, which is a page or so. You're writing about the your specific aim, so meaning exactly what you're going to do in a page. And then you usually get about five or six pages to... Um, support how you're going, why you're going after those research aims and how you're going to do it. Then on top of that, um, there's a lot more that goes into it. So you have your bio sketch, which is about five pages of sort of your background and your contributions to science. So they want your publications, your awards. Um, you may provide bio sketches for anybody that's supporting you in this grant. So your mentor, anybody you're going to work with, um, anybody that's going to train you if you need certain to learn certain techniques to complete the grant. Um, you will have your letters of recommendation, which could be, you know, one, but from one person or they could require up to three or four people. And you also have 
budget. So you're asking for money and you have to detail exactly how much you're going to spend where and when. You have to provide a timeline for when you're going to do all of this. Um, so I would say in general, uh, I'm doing sort of pilot funding or a pilot f- grant might be 20 to 30 pages in total. Um, whereas the, an RSA grant was closer to 60 pages. And that's because there's a lot of documents that you have to include what you're going to say to the IRB and how many people you plan on enrolling. And wow. I could keep going. How, and how, roughly how long does it take to do one? How long has it been taking you to do one? Um, wow. I mean, it, it really depends on the grant. Um, because it also takes months and months for someone to come back and give you feedback on whether you got the grant or not. Mm-hmm. So, um, for these NIH grants, the, the loan repayment program award and the NRSA grant took months, um, wow. because it took, um, say a month to write it. And then I got a lot of feedback. And then the more people you can send it to, the more feedback you can get. Mm-hmm. Um, so I usually give myself a couple months for the next one that I'm doing, the K award. That will definitely take months. Okay. So a lot of, a lot of time, a lot of investment. Yes. Okay. Interesting. For somebody starting out on this journey, what classes would you recommend they take as an undergrad or maybe if they can sneak some extra stuff in during medical school to help them become a better researcher if if they're just doing the MD uh, or DO route at this point? Yeah, I think um, trying to take some basic statistics courses is helpful. Um, Because I don't do statistics frequently, I get help with my statistics, but taking those courses help me to understand how to plan a study um, and what kind of sort of analysis that I can do based on what kind of questions I'm asking. So I think they're really great to sort of have a better understanding of how research works. Um, I think understanding clinical trial design is a good class to take. And I think just, you know, reading research in the area that you're interested in and really getting into sort of exactly what people are doing is also super helpful. Where, where a a pre-med student that's new to research, where can they go and find research that they're interested in? I would do PubMed or Google Scholar um, and just start searching keywords. Okay. So as we wrap up here, for the pre-med student who's being torn in all directions, maybe they're getting the, f- the same feedback that you got that, that they need to go MD, PhD because it opens more doors or whatever. What would you tell a student to help them make that decision of whether a, a single degree or dual degree is right for them? You really can accomplish your goals with an MD, I think if you find that you needed the PhD for some reason, that's an option, right? You can do that 
after your MD. You could probably do that. Meanwhile, um, there are other degrees like a master's degree that might help you if you need to have more training or you feel that you want more training. So, you know, I think that it's certainly possible to have a career focused on research with just an MD. Um, my, my mentor has, is, has a giant, you know, a very productive lab. Um, and he has just an MD. So it's definitely possible. And I think depending, either way, you're going to have to determine how you're going to spend your time. There's only so many hours in a week. Um, so talk about that for, for one second time management. How do you, how do you learn time management skills or is it just something you've kind of tripped and stumbled and figured out as you've gone? Yeah, I think it's extremely hard to figure out how to manage your time when you're doing research and being a clinician, especially when you're so passionate about a project because there's always more grants to write. There's always papers to write. There's always a chapter to write. Um, so I have had to really actively try to manage my time, um, and take time off. And so I'm still always working on that and trying to determine, you know, what grants make the most sense to apply to and what papers must be written. I think I've been able to manage my time a little bit better now that I have grants because I can take my time in writing other grants. Um, but in research, there's really, you can always keep writing and reading. So you have to sort of draw some lines in the sand for yourself. For the pre-med student out there who's struggling on their journey and struggling through all of the prereqs and getting in the research and extracurriculars and everything else and is questioning whether or not the journey is worth it. What do you say to them? I say it's so worth it. I think, you know, I get to manage my time the way I want right now. Um, I, I agree that the pre-med years and, you know, when you're trying to sort of reach your goals of where you want to be are the hardest years, but I love, I love my job. I love the balance I have. I love doing procedures and seeing patients and also being able to, you know, answer these questions I find so interesting. So it's totally worth it. Keep it up. All right. There you have it again, Dr. Maureen Leonard talking about her journey into medicine and why she thinks that you don't need that dual degree to do research, to do a lot of research as a physician. And I talk about this all the time to students that if it, you want to do research as a physician, you can do research. You don't need the PhD to do it. The, not having the PhD doesn't hold you back. Now, if you look at, at, at Dr. Leonard, she's at one of the top academic medical institutions in the country, one of the top research institutions in the country, has that just MD. Her mentor has just the MD, and they're out there doing a ton of amazing things, a ton of research, and very, very successful at it, not being held back, not having that PhD. 
So if you're one of those students that loves the bench research and dies for it and can't see yourself doing anything else, then sure, maybe go ahead, go on, get that PhD. If that's what you want life to look like, uh, get that PhD, the, the dual degree as well. If not, now you know that you don't have to, and that is okay. All right, so that's what I have for you today. Hopefully that was useful. I know it was. I know it will be useful for a lot of you that are contemplating MD or MD-PhD. If you are in the Tampa area, November 4th, come join me at AMSA PreMedFest. Go to amsapremedfest.org. Use the promo code MSHQ17. I'll also be in Dallas in October, UC Davis, October for their pre-med conference. The end of October, I'll be in Dallas beginning in November, as I mentioned, November 4th in Tampa for Pre-Med Fest. I'll be in Orlando in February of 2018 for the UCF Medical School Symposium. Um, I'm actually keynoting that conference. the first time I've actually announced that I'll be keynoting. So if you're listening to this, um, I would love to see you there. And uh, yeah, there are more awesome things to come. So thanks for joining me. I hope you have a great week. Catch us next time here at the Medical School Headquarters and the Pre-Med Years Podcast.